Our reading this morning is taken from Psalm 119. We will uh, start in verse 17 and read down through verse 24. It's the passage we're looking at this week in our uh, small group. And it fits wonderfully with the issue of the law because Psalm 119 talks a lot about God's words, his precepts, his judgments, his testimonies, what he says about things, his teachings, his word, his promises, and his commands. In verse 17 through 24, there is a pretty clear connection. There's a theme there. The believer walking with the living God, with an open Bible, but in particular, in a world that opposes the God of the Bible. So, starting in verse 17, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. My soul is crushed with longing after your ordinances at all times. You rebuke the arrogant, the cursed, who wander from your commandments. Take away reproach and contempt from me, for I observe your testimonies. Even though princes sit and talk against me, your servant meditates on your statutes. Your testimonies also are my delight. They are my counselors. Let's pray. Our great God, we come to lay our praises before you at the beginning of the week. We come to give our thanks as well, to express love, even though we do feel the reality that our greatest expressions of praise or thanks, our, our most warm phrases that English gives us so that we can bring it to you, it doesn't express what you deserve, but it, it is not rejected. We come to you through the finished work of your son, whose prayers were perfect. His words were chosen perfectly. He never exaggerated his love to you and his prayers. He never prayed so that other people around him would be impressed and think he was more spiritual than he was. He never used prayer as a type of a bribe, as a way to get off the hook. So we don't come to you this morning because our prayers are perfect and they never have those inconsistencies. We come because you are our creator. You are our redeemer. You purchased us out of slavery. You brought us out of a horrible dungeon, a prison cell. And the bars weren't all around us. They were in our own hearts. We gladly forged them. We chose self over you. We doubted you and believed our feelings and what people around us said. We even used our religion as a way to avoid really surrendering to you. So God, we come to you to meet you at a mercy seat, a throne of grace. We come because of what Christ did in obeying the law perfectly. We come because of what we owe our Redeemer and Creator. God, we come as children to a father to say that we do love you, but we need you. We need you as much in this present moment as we have ever needed you. We need you as much as the very first time we cried out to you. 
And we will need you every moment until we see your son exalted and receiving the glory that belongs to him alone. And all the nations called before him to bow, to confess that he really is who he said he is. And all creation altered and remade by him, for him, through him. And every believer gathered with every believer from Old Testament times and New Testament and throughout the centuries. Every believer yet to be born if you tarry. And every believer wearing the perfect robe of Christ's righteousness made complete finally in him. But until that day, will you help us to live on what you say is real? Will you help us to love each other in light of who, whose father we are? Would you help love to you, stir us to get up when we're tired and to be thoughtful when we're selfish? To think of others, to pray for them, to speak and walk alongside them. God, we are so often aware, even in a small church, how many extra or extraordinary needs. They're, they seem extreme at times. Where people are passing through particularly dark places. And God, will you help us not be the kind of people who stand at a safe distance and wish them well. We ask that you would fill our hearts with such a love and a confidence in your ability to give us what we need that we would risk walking alongside of each other. Father, we pray that the name of your son would be exalted, not just here or in our homes, not just on Sunday mornings, but when no one's watching, when no one knows what we think. When no one knows what we look at, when no one knows how we talk to each other in our bedrooms and what we might say to the kids, we want every aspect of this day, which we'll never have again, we want every part of it to be devoted to you. So give us all we need in the present moments to know to delight in and to do all your good pleasure for love of the King. And we pray that this would be true across our tiny world. What an insignificant speck of dust we must appear. And yet you know us. So turn your face toward us. Turn your face toward those who are at a distance from you. Whatever language they speak, whatever part of the earth they're meeting on today, whatever excuses they've given you in the past, call them like a shepherd does his sheep. Call them with an irresistible call. Show them how sweet Christ is, how perfect for them, and conquer them with your kindness. We ask it in the name of Christ, for the name of Christ, Father. Amen. Well, we've been looking at the theme of following Christ, and every Christian is fundamentally a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. That includes recalibrating our lives to adjust them to what God says. What, what did Christ teach? Think of the Sermon on the Mount. So much more. Adjust our lives to hope in what he has done 
and how he's explained the provision that God has made for people that were once his enemies. But also it includes following his pattern. How did he live? And in the Lord Jesus Christ, we see the perfect God-man obeying the Father, following the scriptures, completing every task that he was given, not just the special tasks of Messiah, but the everyday tasks of how to love God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength and how to love others as he loved himself. So while there are many things in the life of Jesus that we're not imitating, there are the basics, the moral law, the fundamental ways that God describes things to be right or to be wrong and walking in that path with Christ or for Christ or by Christ. And we've been looking at that for some time and trying to ask the question, well, how is the new covenant believer to approach the law? How do we understand the law? What purpose does the law have? It seems to be put away. Is it put away entirely? Is it put away in in some ways, but does it still remain? And we've been trying to ask those questions and answer them. And so I hope uh, that you haven't become weary with our approach to Mount Sinai. It's like the the approach is like half the climb, you know. So we're walking up to the Ten Commandments, but we want to do it in a careful way. It's not because I think that um, uh, Christ Church is, you know, a place where everyone says, uh, once I'm a Christian, I can do what I want. But there are things we need to get clear in our mind because as we do look at the Ten Commandments, there will be times where to express our love to God and obedience to a particular command, it might be very costly to you. And as a Christian, you want to do that, but that doesn't mean it's effortless. And so while it is in the new nature, the law is written on the heart, that is, there's something about Loving God who saved you that makes you want to express that in obedience. While that is there for every believer, that does not mean that it always occurs. And so we have to understand why is this important? Because if there's any, I I believe, maybe just my own experience and not yours. But if there are areas about the law that I still have big question marks, then when it gets costly, I stop. And I say, oh, I'm not so sure about this obedience to this particular command. And and I'll just kind of put it on the back burner of my life until I am sure. And then the easy ones, the ones that I enjoy doing or the ones that, you know, kind of come more effortlessly. Those I say, oh, no, well, well, those are obvious. I mean, you're supposed to do those. So as the cost increases, I find that the clarity for the Christian needs to be increasing. Now, what we want to do today is I want to put together a list of principles for approaching God's law. There are 10 things. Some of them we've talked about in the past months, so we will mention them quickly. Some of them we haven't talked about, so we'll slow down. And we'll try to show how these come from scripture quickly. And I will, in an email this week, put out this list. And I hope hope by Sunday to also have just maybe some kind of cardstock bookmarkers, and uh, you can use those. You can throw them in the back of your Bible as we're walking through the law. Use it as you're reading your Bible. You know, what are the, what are the biblical principles 
for approaching the moral law. How does the Bible tell us how to come to the commands? And I think that there are principles. They're pretty clear, but it's helpful to be reminded. Uh, And then we're going to be looking at those, and we're also going to be borrowing help today as we have in the past. And in coming weeks, we will borrow help from some old dead authors. And so I want to give you a quick history lesson uh, just to explain why. Oftentimes, we quote from writers that we call the Puritans, and, and I just assume that everybody knows what a Puritan is. I didn't know what a Puritan was. I mean, I was finishing seminary, and someone said, have you read so-and-so on the new birth? And I thought, um, okay, so who's so-and-so? You know, is he, where does he preach? And Well, he's been dead for 400 years, and he was a Puritan. And I thought, Puritan? Okay, so is that a person that wears big buckles on their shoes? And they, they were, you know, they celebrated Thanksgiving with the Indians? And they said, no, no, those are pilgrims. Puritans are different. What is a Puritan? All right, so let's back up. A Puritan really is just a person, particularly in the United Kingdom, some in Europe, and also in the American colonies, that they were people about 100 years after the Reformation who wanted to see the Reformation continue in the churches. They felt that while the Protestant Reformation, you know, had created these new churches, that we weren't, people weren't still all in the Roman Catholic Church, but the churches sometimes kind of stopped where it was comfortable, particularly in England. And so they said, let's go all the way. Let's be biblical in every area. Now, in the Reformation, the big points that really drove the Reformation or the points that were, you know, that the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation orbited were not the five points of Calvinism. The five points of Calvinism, people nickname it, I believe they're biblically true, but that's not all that John Calvin talked about. That's not even the main things that John Calvin talked about or Luther or Zwingli, you know, or the English reformers. Those were points that much later were brought up by a small group that disagreed with the reformers' views on those five points. And so they had these five objections. We don't, we don't think this, we don't agree with this, this, this. So we have five objections. And the five objections were answered by the Protestant churches of Europe at a place called Dort. Now, don't, if you're going to fall asleep in the history class, go ahead. I'll wake you up in a minute. The Synod of Dort. So they all come together and they say, how do we answer these? These people say that that Luther and Calvin and these guys were wrong on this. And so they go back to the scripture and they answer them with five replies, five objections, five replies. That's not, that's a response to people who had questions. That's the five points of Calvinism. But that wasn't the heart of the Reformation. That wasn't what the reformers said. These five things are what's important, okay? What they said was important were these, all right? Another five. Sola Scriptura. This is all Latin, all right? So just put a wrinkle in your brain. We learn a new thing. Sola Scriptura, Sola Christus, Sola Fide, Sola Gratiae, Soli Deo Gloria. But in English it means Scripture alone. That's our, our authority, not a pope and Scripture, not councils in Scripture. Christ alone, He is the King of the church. Through faith alone, By grace alone, not by grace plus my good works, and for the glory or to the glory of God alone. 
So that's the Reformation. Now, 100 years later, 1558, Queen Elizabeth I, not the one that just died, she comes to the throne and she says, let's quit killing each other, Protestants and Catholics. Let's get along. We'll have a Church of England that's kind of a mix. And so it didn't really make anybody happy who was serious about religion, but it did calm things down. And for the next 100 years, the people that wanted to see the Church of England be more biblical were called Puritans. It was a nickname. It was an insult. Oh, you're a pure person. You're the Puritan. You're a precisionist. At the end of 100 years, the Puritans were booted out of the Church of England, which was 96% of, of religion in England and Wales. Scotland's different. So they get kicked out. And when they get kicked out, they're persecuted for a while. They go to jail. Some of them are killed, very few of them. And then after about 20 years, they're allowed freedom. So think of John Bunyan, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress. He's in prison for preaching as a Baptist. Eventually, he's let out. He's let out because the government decides that they're going to let other denominations exist. And they won't put you in jail for being a Baptist anymore. So... Baptist churches, Congregationalist churches, Presbyterian churches pop up everywhere in England and Wales, along with the Anglican church. And when the churches start, they know that they need to be very careful in explaining what do we believe. Okay, you're not Church of England. You're weird. You're a Baptist. What do you people believe? You're a Presbyterian. You're a Congregationalist. And so those three major groups formed confessions of faith to explain how they understood what the Bible meant by what it said. And they also wrote catechisms so that they could pass that knowledge on. So through questions and answers, they would teach not just children, but adults. Now, all of that history lesson has a purpose. When we come to the Baptist catechism that was written in that time, 1680s, it's in agreement with the Presbyterian Catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's the famous one. And they're, they're almost word for word in many places. And when they, as Puritans, were rethinking how do we church, do church and how do we live the Christian life, they were pretty radical. It was mostly, by the way, not old people. If you look at the pictures of the Puritan authors on these Puritan books that we read, they're all old. They have these weird long goatees and funky hats, and sometimes they have powdered wigs. And, you know, it's not that helpful if you're wanting to introduce Puritans to new people to hand them the book, you know, where Jonathan Edwards or somebody has a big powdered wig. You think, what? So let me make this clear. The Puritan movement was a movement of college kids led by some college professors in the first 40 years. They did eventually get old. And, you know, so what we have is the picture of them as old people John Owen and John Flavel and Richard Sibbs, they were college kids. And they were going to Oxford and Cambridge, mainly Cambridge. And there was a guy named William Perkins, who was a professor, but also a very godly man and a pastor. And he taught the, the elite sons of England and Wales about God and the truth about the gospel and why the Roman Catholic Church was wrong and and, you know, and where we need to keep moving forward in the Anglican church. And he became really the father of what we call the Puritans. The people you and I have read in our little small groups, many of them were trained by William Perkins. It was a radical college 
aged movement, not nice, stable old men. So when they got together and they discussed, well, what does the Christian life look like? They said, well, what about the law? We need to make a clear statement. We don't want to be legalists and we don't want to be self-indulged people that say, I'm saved by grace so I can do what I want. So how do we understand what the Bible says about the law? And they wrote catechisms. This is the catechism that we've embraced. Uh, Keech's catechism, sometimes it's called, or the Baptist catechism. It, it came about from the Baptist side of Puritans. I want to read you four questions and answers because it's going to guide some of our thoughts. First, what is the duty which God requires of man? The duty which God requires of man is obedience to his revealed will. Pretty simple. Second, what did God at first reveal to man for the rule of his obedience? And the answer, the rule which God at first revealed to man for his obedience was the moral law. We talked about this in the last couple of weeks. It's written in our hearts, right? Later, made specific in Moses' commandments. Number three, where is the moral law summarily comprehended? Okay, there's a bump. Has anybody used that phrase this week? Hmm? When you talk to your kids and they say, what, uh, you know, or your wife and your husband, that you say, hey, I've got a whole list of things to do. There, there's some stuff you need to, you said you would do it, so can you do it? And you, do you say, well, can it be summarily comprehended in a few words? We don't talk that way. So the moral law has been summarized in a comprehensive kind of way. Where is the moral law summarized in a comprehensive way? The moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. Fourth, what is the sum of the Ten Commandments? The sum of the Ten Commandments is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, with all our mind, and our neighbor as ourselves. Now, that's the catechism, questions and answers, that we've got. That came from 300 plus years ago. It's a good catechism. I think those answers are very biblical. There's a lot of verses with each answer, but we, we've been talking about these things, so we're not going to read all those verses. And the catechism isn't what I want to preach this morning. I just want to use that as an example. Catechisms and confessions are helpful tools to guide, to protect us against error, to pass knowledge on. But they are not our Bible. They are not our authority. In fact, the Baptist confession of faith starts by saying, the Bible is the only authority. Right? So it's easy when you find a new tool. When there's new technology, think of it this way. When there's new technology in a field, you know, the business owner finds out there's some new great technology in his field, and he gets together enough money and he buys the new technology and he, and he gets a significant advantage over his competitors because he's got this new technology. It happens that way in churches too. We go from kind of, you know, America's Got Talent approach to worship services where it's all exciting and it's kind of a circus. And then we go, oh, oh, that's not right. And then we swing over and we're, we're going to be biblical and somebody hands us a confession and a catechism and we say, oh, New technology for the church. It's so old, it's new. And if you're not careful, you think that will fix us, but it doesn't. It is a good help, though. So we want to use the tools correctly, and we will be mentioning some of the things that the catechism mentioned. But I gave all of that to say this. What we're looking at in the principles today are drawn from the scripture, but they are things 
that for the last 400 years, Baptists have pointed to, even though perhaps we haven't thought of them. All right, so let's look at the biblical principles and kind of pull them all together in one spot. All right, 10 of them, so we got to go quickly. Number one, the commands of God are for every person, not specific groups like Jews and Christians, not for groups in specific periods of time, old covenant time versus new covenant time. Now, we have talked about this so much that I don't need to spend any time on it really, but just to remind you that when we talk about the moral law, the Ten Commands, which are summing, summing up that law, it is the fact that you belong to a creator and the creator-creature relationship. That's the foundation for your obligation to obey what he says. It's not because you're a Christian that you should obey the Bible. It's because you are his created being. He made you. He sustained you. And he has the right to rule us. But, as the introduction to the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 points out, there is an added level, an added layer of obligation. There is a greater degree of obligation. When you think, as a believer, he's not just my creator, he's my rescuer, he's my redeemer. He bought me, he saved me. He washed me and clothed me and adopted me. He presently supplies my spiritual needs. He protects me and guarantees that I will arrive where I'm supposed to arrive spiritually in the right way. So that means I have more obligation, not less. It's one thing to be polite to older ladies, you know, treat the older people with respect. And so we, we try to teach our children that, you know, Mrs. So-and-so's older, you need to be very respectful. Okay. But while you might owe Mrs. So-and-so respect and to treat her rightly, when you think of your own grandmother, there's an added layer like, well, that's just not an older lady, but that, that's my grandmother. There are some really old people in the church who just heard that they're getting a grandbaby. So I had to use a grandbaby illustration. All right. That's misty. Okay. Are you with me? I'm just checking. The law is for everyone. Everyone owes God obedience. But the believer who's been rescued has a greater motivation than just being created. Number two, the Ten Commandments are summaries. That's what the catechism mentioned. They're summaries of God's moral law. They contain more than they say. They are like windows that you look through. And the window's only this big. But when you look through, you see this giant landscape. And you see a landscape where this path goes through all these different situations. And it's, it's such a beautiful portrait. It's the life of happy obedience. But the window's only this big. Maybe a better illustration is to say the gate, the gate you know, the gate's only three foot wide. That's like the command, but then it, it opens up. So don't think of the Ten Commandments as these are ten things God said you're allowed to do or not to do and everything else is wide open. I mean, surely when you read the Ten Commandments and say, well, those are obvious, but you do understand that things that aren't specifically listed in the Ten Commandments, they're included because they're summarized by these ten kind of gates or ten windows or ten categories. 
The Ten Commandments summarize all the moral law of God. How do we know that's the case? Well, if you just keep reading, right after the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus, chapter 20 and 21 and 22, all the way to the end of the Bible, you find that the laws, those basic Ten Commandments, are expanded. Okay, so I'm to love, I'm not to have any other God before the living God. And then the Bible adds so much detail to that command. I'm not to make idols. The Bible adds so much detail. I'm to, you know, I'm to not take his name in vain. The Bible adds detail. And all through, all ten, the rest of your Bible is filling in detail. So what are the ten? Well, they are a portable version of the law, of the moral law. It's something that you and I can memorize and we can run with it. But we couldn't memorize the 600 plus specifics. If you ever read Jonathan Edwards' resolutions, his New Year resolutions, it, to me, it's an example of what the law, the Ten Commandments, is not. He has so many resolutions. I forget what the number was. It seems like it was up in the 70s. I read through them and I thought, wow, these are so complete. But there's a problem there. I would never be able to remember all 72 resolutions. So if I woke up tomorrow morning and I said, I'm going to follow John, Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. They're going to be John Snyder's resolutions this year. I would always be failing because I couldn't remember what 67 was or what about 48. So God doesn't give you 600 specific little laws on tablets of stone. He gives you 10 commands that summarize. Third, the moral law is all connected. It's, it's not able really to be divided. We can discuss them individually, but they're not really, they're not able to be separated. Human laws are not like that. If you ever, have ever lived in a place where, you know, you have burn bans, so local civil law. So there's a civil law. It's been very dry in the summer, and people are told there's a burn ban. You're not supposed to go out and burn anything in your yard. So you don't. Or maybe there's watering lawn bans. You're not allowed to use the water to water your lawn, and people sneak and do it at night, and their, their neighbors tell on them. If you break the burn ban and you burn something in your backyard when it's really dry and dangerous to do so, you have disobeyed a local civil ordinance. But you don't get called up before a court and be faced with the charge of murder. Because just because you broke the burn ban law doesn't mean you're a murderer. But with God's laws, they're all connected. Listen to what James says, chapter 2. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit murder, also said, uh, sorry, he who said, do not commit adultery, also, also said, do not commit murder. For uh, now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you become a transgressor of the law. I guess the simplest way of saying that is because the divine law, the moral commandments, because they are an expression of who God is, his perfection, and because they are an expression of a summary of what kind of life pleases him, then for you to break one law means you blew it. Your life does not please God. And so you are charged with all. You're a lawbreaker. But when we think about the fact that these laws are connected, 
And you don't just to get pick and choose which ones you want to obey, like the Pharisees did. Okay, we'll, we'll obey these, and we'll ignore these, and we'll be right with God. But no, because if you ignore one of the Ten Commandments, and you're really great at the other nine, you're still a lawbreaker. You're in that category with the people that broke all ten. So you don't get to pick and choose where you obey. And we'll mention again the Pharisees in a minute. But there's another aspect of this connection. The law, the moral law, has two sides, all right, two categories, big categories. Our relationship to God and our relationship to each other. And that's why in the Bible, it says that the law is fulfilled by love. In other words, love to God, that's the first great command, and love to each other, that's the second command. And the law reflects that. It was written by God originally on two tablets of stone, later Moses, two tablets of stone, the, one, the, the laws that are vertical, me and my God, and the laws that are horizontal, me and the people around me. Now, there is an order there of importance, and there is a, a, an, an essential connection. So as we're studying the law, we just need to keep this in mind, or else we become warped, and we distort the law. What's the order? Well, the first four, which deal with you and your God, are primary, and they will flow out and help you with the last six that deal with you and humans. I mean, it's what John says in 1 John. If we love God, we love the children of God around us. If we love the king that says to love your enemies, we'll love our enemies for love of the king. So if you get the first four really right, you'll find the second half how you're supposed to treat people, that's greatly aided because love to God will flow into love to people. But it doesn't work the other way. If you like people and you're a kind person who's always kind to people and you're fair, you know, at work, you're the fair, generous, kind person. It doesn't necessarily mean that being fair and generous and kind to a human will suddenly make you want to love God. You can be a really moral, nice ethically admirable, fair person and not love God. You can do it for yourself. If we don't keep the order and we don't keep them connected, then we fall into one of two problems. One is the problem of the Pharisees. You're a hypocrite. Oh, I'm all about God. I love God. And my heart is devoted to God. Well, what about the people around you? Oh, well, I'm, I'm so busy being devoted to God. I, I just don't really have time for the people around me. Do you remember what Christ said? In Matthew 23, he's rebuking the Pharisees, and he says this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. Verse 23. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin. You go to your pantry, and you get the little boxes of, of spices, and you separate one out of ten for each one. This is hyperbole. So you're, you're getting your spices out. Oh, I need to give one out of each 10 of these little spices to God because I'm so godly. But he says, you have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are things you should have done without neglecting the others. You should have loved God. Yes. But you don't really love God. You just have a show. And that is demonstrated by the fact that you don't love people. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. 
You're not interested in justice, in what is right. You're not interested in being merciful to the people next to you. And you're not faithful to what you say. You don't keep your word to people, but you're very religious. And that's what happens if we approach the Ten Commandments and we say, all that matters is the first half. But if you only focus on the second half, as I mentioned, then we become people that are very moral and kind of self-righteous, but we're not necessarily people that love God at all. So, order, connection. That's important. Let me give you a fourth. Fourth thing about approaching the law. The commandments include both positive and negative. Even though they only state one side of it. Both are included. And I want to prove that. Because we don't want to add to any, what the Bible says and say, well, the preacher said this. Well, does the Bible say it? When we come to these commands, which you know, summarize, and as I said, there, there is more involved in, you know, honesty than just not bearing false witness. The commands may state negatively, don't bear false witness, but do you think it's enough to just not be the person that told the lie? What if you're a person who stands next to the person who's lying? So you're at work and, you know, and the boss calls the, the workers in and he's really angry. Somebody's going to get chopped. And uh, one of your associates says, hey, it's not going to be us. You just, you back me up. And he, he tells a lie. And he says, it's so-and-so that didn't do their part. And you know it's a lie. And so-and-so is about to lose their job. If you didn't say the lie and you just keep quiet, is, does God say, well done, my good and faithful servant? So there's not lying, but there's also then the opposite, to be honest do you remember what Paul writes in the New Testament? Be so honest. Christ talks about honesty in Matthew 5. Let your yes and your no be yes or no. And that's all that's required because you're so honest. You don't have to say, oh, no, no, no. I promise or I swear by and I swear by this. And people think, okay, well, maybe they'll keep their word this time because they, they swore by these things. But as a believer, walking with the Lord, you're so honest. It's not just that you don't tell big lies. It's that you're you're so trustworthy that a yes or a no from you is enough. Let me give you an example. In command number one, we are not to have any gods before our God. But it also implies, so no idols, no, no, you're not allowed to have two or three gods. But it also implies that you do need to have the God as your God. You are to have no gods before me, God says, but you don't think, do you, that atheism would be enough to satisfy God? And you could say, God, I don't have any gods at all. I don't believe in God. So I've not broken the first commandment. Okay? He didn't say, you have to worship me and love me. He just said, don't have any gods before him. Well, I don't have any gods before him because I don't believe in any gods. Has the atheist obeyed the first commandment? No. Because what is implied in that, to really keep it, you have to have the other side of it. No gods before him. Okay. But you have to have him. We're going to see this over and over as we look at the commands, but I just want to give you the principle. Let me prove this though. Well, what I just said is part of the proof. The nature of the command itself, it makes it pretty clear that you couldn't really keep the command by only doing the one half of it. All right. So, if we think of um, bearing false witness again. 
If God says you are not to be a person who bears false witness, you understand that also includes the positive side. You are to be an honest person. And the illustration I mentioned at work should prove that, you know, you couldn't really, you couldn't really obey the Ten Commandments if you let other people lie all around you and you just went along with it and you didn't speak the truth. Sometimes we say to people, well, so-and-so asked me such and such. And uh, I replied this. And it was a deceitful reply. It was meant to be deceitful. It was meant to, you know, send them down another path with their questions. But you deceive them without giving a, a clear lie. So the, the Ten Commandments, positive as well as negative. That's seen in the nature of the command. There's no way, really, to have no gods before God and to be pleasing to God if you don't also also have God, the other side of that. Let me give you another proof. If you think of love, love is the fulfillment of the law, Paul says. In other words, the whole, the whole law is you loving in the right way, loving God in the way he wants to be loved, loving people in the way that God says is the best way to love people. And we need the law because we don't know at times what would it look like to love God in this situation or what would it look like to love people I mean, just think of it. As culture shifts radically today, people's expectations under the category of love have shifted radically. So what a person might have said 40 years ago, uh, you know, if you're a really loving friend, if you really cared about me, you would whatever. 40 years ago. Today, if you really cared about me, you would affirm my decision in this way. So as the culture shifts in its definition of love, the law becomes so obviously necessary. How do I love other people? Well, man doesn't get to say what that looks like. God does. And that we're glad because God is so clear and perfect. So if I really love people, I have the all-knowing God who is perfect explaining to me, this is how to love your friend. This is how to love your kids. This is how to love your spouse. This is how to love fellow church members. Now, when you think about that, then you can use that as a simple test. When you say, okay, am I doing what the law commands here? You could also say, am I loving in the right way? Okay, so let's think again of the, the job situation with deceit. And you didn't tell the lie, but you're just sitting there and you're deciding, should I keep quiet or should I say something? I'm not the one lying. I'm just sitting there acting like I don't have anything to say. So what does the command say? Well, it says don't bear false witness. So I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to lie against my coworker. Yes, but what about being an honest person who stands for what's true? You say, well, the command didn't say that exactly, but it implies that. How do you know that? Because the goal of the commands is love. So if you love, if you really care about the person that's being lied against, what do you do? You say, you stop and say, wait, that's not true. That's not the way it happened. It just, it's natural because we love. One of the ways we can test whether we're really doing what God gave us to do is, is it the thing that is love? Another way to prove it, of course, is Jesus' example. You cannot look at the life of Jesus and say, he only did what is openly stated, but he didn't do the other half. So, okay, he didn't have idols, but he didn't, but also he didn't worship the true God. Or he didn't tell lies, but he oftentimes, he just didn't tell the truth. 
So in Christ we see the law and love so perfectly displayed. Another way to say it is, where any sin is forbidden, the opposite duty is commanded. And where any command, any command is given, the opposite sin is forbidden. We'll be looking at this in the coming days. Just want to give you that. Number five, the Ten Commandments deal with the heart. So not only do they touch every area of life for all times and all people, but not only do they give you positive and the opposite side or the negative and the positive side, so there's two sides to these commands, but they don't just touch the outside of your life. They, they have to touch the inside. God deserves the whole of your heart. And in the Bible, the heart is not emotions. It's the interior part of you. That is your desires, right? Your thoughts, your choices, your ambitions, your hopes, your beliefs, all of that. We know that Jesus rebukes the Pharisees because he said, with your mouths, you come close to God, but with your hearts, you're far from God. In other words, the inside of you isn't anywhere near God. The outside of you, the stuff that people can see and hear with your religious talk, well, that's really close to God. And again, when he describes the Pharisees, he says, you're like a dirty cup. Not on the outside. On the outside, you look perfect. On the inside, you're full of nasty scum. Nobody would want to drink out of you. It doesn't matter how clean the outside is. Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 that we looked at a year ago, it's so clear when Jesus peels off the tradition of Jews off of the law and says, this is what God has always been looking for. It's this. He deals with the heart over and over. It's not enough not to kill someone. You are not to walk around with the heart of hate. All right? So these touch the heart. Number six, where any sin is forbidden or any duty is commanded. So don't do this or do this. The things that lead to that sin or the th those are forbidden and the things that lead to that duty, those are part of the command. Let me take both of those. So if God forbids a sin, then let's say adultery. Thou shalt not commit adultery. That means that God is not pleased if we toy with everything that leads to adultery, but stop short of adultery. So if you are engaged in an inappropriate relationship with another person of the opposite sex, and there is this kind of, you know, friendship and intimacy growing between you and somebody else's husband or you and somebody else's wife, and you don't, you're careless. You think, come on, there's nothing wrong with this. And you continue down that path. Or if you know that certain entertainment will stir wrong thoughts and you watch it anyway and you say, well, I'm old enough. I'm an adult. Or if there are certain, you know, things that you shouldn't listen to because they, they stir up old desires and whatever it is that leads to that sin for you, for you, that's a sin. Stay away from it. God is not honored God is not loved wholeheartedly by a person that grabs hold of every, that takes the step of everything that leads to a sin, but then stops at the cliff and says, well, I won't jump off the cliff. Does that honor God? I mean, if you watch a person live like that, do you think, wow, 
What a savior they must have. Well, no. So when sin is forbidden, things that lead to that sin, they're also forbidden. We see that through the whole Bible. Take the other side. Well, let me give you one example from Proverbs. Proverbs 5, verse 8. So Proverbs 5 is talking about a prostitute. And Solomon is saying to his son, do not go near her even. I'm not just saying don't go be with the prostitute. I'm saying don't walk up to her house and sit on the porch and talk with her. All right? Don't be stupid. But Proverbs 5, verse 8 says it this way. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Is Solomon adding laws to the word of God and like a Pharisee, just traditions of men? No, he's just taking that command, which says more than just what, you know, in black and whites right there. It summarizes. It includes more. It's a summary. So Solomon's saying, look, I'm not just telling you don't go and be with that prostitute. I'm telling you don't go close to the girl. Now, think about the opposite side. If God commands us to do something, do this, then the things that lead to doing it are also things that we should do. It is not pleasing to God for us to sit around and say, I think that this is a great thing that God has commanded us to do. I understand why he says it. I understand why it still applies to a Christian. I think it's a great thing. I think it's something everybody ought to be doing. But you're very inconsistent in it. Well, why? Well, because perhaps you don't make the choices that are required to make sure you actually do it. And so not doing the things that will lead to the obedience ends up causing you to disobey. A simple illustration, the Sabbath. If the Sabbath, and we'll talk about it when we get there, but if the Sabbath is a timeless principle of setting apart a day for the worship of God together, worshiping as creator in the Old Testament, as redeemer in the new, if we're to keep that day special and set apart to God, then if that's the command, then the little things you need to do so that that will actually happen, those are also commanded. So, you know, you got to get to bed on time and you got to make choices on Saturday night that will have a beneficial effect on Sunday morning and you got to help each other. And there are things that lead to obedience and things that lead to obedience are also required. Number seven, if the law forbids something, then it also forbids you to be an accessory to something. And if the law commands something, it also puts a duty on us to help the people that we have influence over, to help them to do what they're supposed to do. In other words, loving God means I don't want to encourage someone to sin against God. And if, and if I have an influence over them, so in my family or through friendships or, you know, authority at work, I don't want, I, I do not ever want to use my authority, my influence to lead people to sin. That would be sinful even though I didn't do it. When David has the wife of the woman that he committed adultery with and who's now pregnant, all right, Uriah, when he has Uriah killed, he didn't kill Uriah. There's no fingerprints of David on the sword or the stone. Forget how Uriah, he died from going up too close to the walls in a war, but he tells his general, 
You're to put Uriah in the front lines. Not just that. As soon as he's really close to the hottest part of the battle, I want you to call all the other men back. And you leave Uriah to die. So he does. David, in God's eyes, killed Uriah. Because David used his authority to get his general to murder someone. So, think of the Apostle Paul before he was a Christian. Saul was his name. You remember the picture? Saul is standing there holding the cloaks, the outer garments of the men that are stoning Stephen for being a Christian. And he is in complete agreement with this. He feels this is the very best thing. He's not conflicted. He's wholehearted. Saul, in God's eyes, is also guilty of the murder of Stephen. If you bring it down to practical today, if you're sitting across the table today and talking to a Christian who says, you know, I know that being a Christian in this hard situation in my home or at work, I, I probably should do this. You know, I should probably forgive or I should do this or I should speak up or whatever. I should go the extra mile. But I, I don't know. It, it's just so hard. I, I just feel like I'm, I don't think, I don't, I'm not sure I'm going to do it. And if you carelessly give weakening words and you say, oh, I understand. I feel that way too. I mean, everyone understands if you don't do that. But you've just encouraged them with your friendship to not obey God, to not pay the price to follow Christ. Then you bear a part of that sin. So when God forbids something, we are not to be in some way an accessory to that. That can be our influence by our example, not just the use of authority. So a parent, through our bad examples, we oftentimes see that our children make the same kind of bad choices we make. And we know I have a part in that. In the bad choices of King Ahaz, he's, he worships idols, he's all for it. And God says a strange thing. He said, Ahaz removed all restraint in the land. In other words, when the king loved idols with all of his heart, then the Jews looked at the king and thought, well, I can love idols. And the land went wild with idolatry. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, said, there are hereditary illnesses in families. And there are hereditary sins. And we could say there are hereditary sins in churches too. We, we just pass them down, don't we? Young people, maybe a, a young Christian, maybe they're not young physically, but they're a baby Christian. They look around to, at the people that have been walking with the Lord for a long time, sitting next to them, and they say, they're always asking the same question. So what's a Christian life? And they're watching you. Is your example helping them to obey or is your example encouraging disobedience? We don't want to use our authority to cause people to sin like King David. And we do want to use our authority in areas that we do have a legitimate opportunity to influence people for good. Do it. You remember Eli and his sons, the Old Testament high priest who was such a rotten dad and his sons were even more rotten and God killed them. I mean, they were really rotten. And uh, Eli was warned a few times, your sons, <clears throat> your sons are doing things at the, 
in the tabernacle that are unspeakable. And he does nothing. If God forbids a thing, this is sin. And someone who is under your influence chooses it. You can't fix them. You can't make them love God. You can't make them sinning. stop sinning. You can't make them a Christian. But you are duty bound for love of God and for love of that person to do all you can to, in, to restrain their self-destruction. What parent looks at a child who is headed off a moral cliff and says, it's not my fault, I didn't do it. I don't act that way. Mom and I don't do that thing. So if they run off a cliff, it's their fault. Well, it is their fault. But if you have not done what you could, you can't fix them. But if you have not done what you could, the prayers, the example, the words spoken at a right time, then it is a sin because we refused to be a part of helping someone else. The law of love requires it. The Ten Commandments shows us how it would look. Well, let me come to the number eight. Obeying the Ten Commandments is an expression of love. And we've talked about that a lot. I won't mention it, except just to say, if we say, well, then why don't we just love? Well, the law makes love clear. What, what does it look like? And if we do love God and men, God and humanity, then the path of the law is what we wanted. But it's also love to Christ, isn't it? There is a person on this path. So there's a very specific path. This is what pleases God. This is what doesn't please God. And then there is a person on this path, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I love the path because it's his path. I love the path because it's his law. I love the path because I love him. Now, speaking to the Christian, how would you feel about the Ten Commandments? If they were the exact same words, which they're perfect, but they were given to you from Allah, the God of Islam that doesn't exist. And someone said, well, I have a wonderful way for you to live. And you open up this little booklet and it's the Ten Commandments. You think, wow, these are perfect. Well, they are. Who are they from? Oh, they're from Allah. Totally different view. You might think, well, there's wisdom here, but I don't love them. I love the Ten Commandments as much as I love them. It's because I love the King, Christ. Not just because they're perfect. Number nine, the law cannot make you right. It cannot earn your forgiveness. It cannot keep you right. It cannot put to death your Spiritual struggle, your favorite sin, your, your, you know, the, the thing that trips you up, it cannot put that to death. It can't fix you. It can't forgive you, justify you, sanctify you, or guarantee your arrival complete. Only God does that. In Romans 10, Paul says this, Not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish it on their own, the Jews... They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So Paul says, the Jews talk all the time about being right. But they actually miss the, the whole boat. Because they don't understand the righteousness of God. Well, what are you talking about, Paul? Well, the righteousness that Christ alone can provide. 
and the law could never provide because you can't keep it perfectly. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What's he saying? The person in the work of Jesus Christ is the end of the law, is the goal of the law, is the aim of the law. Christ fulfills all the law requires. He fulfills it on behalf of those who believe. And that law, when it shows you how sinful you are, leads you to Christ. So if you're trying to fix yourself by rule keeping, you're on a dead end path. The law has never fixed anybody. Christ fixes us. The law finds its fulfillment in Christ and leads us to Christ and leads us to walk with Christ after he has forgiven us. And that's why sincere but our sincere but imperfect obedience is acceptable as believers. Why? I mean, I, we have this problem a lot and it comes up at Christ Church a lot. I don't obey any one of God's commands perfectly. There's a little bit of imperfection in all of it. Okay. So am I constantly viewed by God as living in open sin? Well, no. Well, then how can God accept something less than perfection? Has God changed? Has he lowered the bar? Not at all. Christ's obedience, think of it this way, paid the debt. And that had to be exact, perfect. Your obedience is not paying the debt. It's not satisfying justice. It is the expression of love of the forgiven, adopted child to their new father. And your love is imperfect, even when it's real. But it's handed to the father through the finished work of the son, who has loved the father perfectly. So the debt's been paid, and what you give is love, is gratitude. And even in a human way with that picture, you can see we... If, if, our, if our child owes us $2, they, maybe they've broken something, and we said, don't do that, you're going to break it. If you break it, you have to pay for it. They broke it. How much does it cost? $2.27. If they pay $2.25, they have not paid for it. But when they just want to show the parent they love them, and they do, you know, so they obey the parent, they clean their room, they do their best, they're, you know, they're so proud. They want you to see how much they love them, and you look in the room, you don't say, ah, I could have done better. I could have done better. You say, well, that's very good. I'm, I'm really thankful that you did that because you know it's an expression of love. Through the perfection of the mediator, the imperfect but real expression of love of the Christian in obedience is accepted. Number 10, you'll be happy to know, is not for this week. It's for next week. And that is, we can only walk the path of obedience by the Spirit of Christ. And we'll look at that next week. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.